comedy is always a really important thing at our synagogue because our wonderful Rabbi Berman was a comedian. And you know, that is often a career choice, go from comedy to being a rabbi. <laughs> Wait, is that how that happens usually? <laughs> anyway, with that said, um, we are just thrilled that the very first speaker that we should have should be David Kaufman and have him be a, uh, an expert on Jewish humor. So with that said, I'm thrilled that you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. What what a what a lovely group and what a lovely space to be in. And uh, thank you for inviting me down here. It, uh, I think we'll have a uh, an interesting uh, afternoon together. Uh, I am uh, currently teaching a course on Jewish humor. I teach that course at USC. It's the history of American Jews in whose whose contribution to the field of comedy in America is really quite extraordinary. And tracing that history uh, proves to be a, a remarkable way to learn about the overall Jewish experience um, in this country, which is my field. My, my field, I should tell you, is American Jewish history. Uh, my first book was on the history of the American Synagogue Center. Uh, the Synagogue Center was a movement in early 20th century American Judaism, and that's where, that's where I began. Only later moving into this very interesting and really quite, uh, I'll, I'll say it, it's fun, it's fun to do, uh, the history of pop culture in this country. Uh, my, my more recent book, uh, which I'll also be talking about today, is entitled Jew Hooing the 60s. And that's why you have a handout in front of you which looks at the 1960s and we'll be talking a little bit about that. So in addition to drawing on the course that I teach and this book, which I'll talk about, uh, I'd also, with your permission, like to start today with um, something a little bit experimental. I've, I've done this talk a zillion times on my book, uh, but I, I, I think for you, for Orange County, I'd like to do something a little bit more expansive. And given that my general field is Jewish history, I teach American Jewish history, I teach modern Jewish history, I teach the Holocaust, I teach Israel, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I'd like to frame this. I'd like to introduce today's talk uh, by talking a little bit about Jewish history, more broadly speaking. And so, again, with your indulgence, uh, I'd like to start with the 20th century. You might remember, that was the century just before this one. The 20th century in the scope of world history is an extraordinary time for many, many reasons. One of them being that, as historians often call it, it became the American century. The 20th century was the, was the time period when the United States came to the fore as one of the world's great powers, as the superpower. You've heard that before. Certainly, it's usually meant to address the economic might of our country, the political sway that the United States would, would have over the course of, of the 20th century. But another reason that I think it's safe to call the 20th century the American century is that it was here in this country when a number of new forms of media were invented. Media being ways of communicating with the larger, broader public. It was in the 20th century in the United States that radio was invented, that film, movies were invented and promoted and disseminated in a place called Hollywood that we'll talk about. It was here in the United States that later, after World, or actually uh, during the war and then in the decades following, a new medium called television was created here and blossomed and had its golden age. 
And it was here in the United States that later the internet was first invented and so forth. So I say all this not to pat ourselves on the back and, and, and make us feel proud of being American, although I suppose that's one valid response. But I do say this to point out just how enormously influential the United States would be, American culture would be, in just one century. Because all of those various forms of media and the content that they sent out over the airwaves moved far beyond the borders of the United States. What begins as American culture has become world culture. A musical genre such as jazz was invented and created here. It's now all over the world. A musical genre called rock and roll was invented and created here. It's now all over the world. We Americans really have every right to feel rather good about ourselves. Now, several years ago, a, a book came out by a colleague of mine named Yuri Zlezkin, a, a Russian-born Jewish historian, uh, entitled The Jewish Century. And he guesses what century he was referring to? The 20th century, that's right. The 20th century can also be thought of as the Jewish century. And in fact, in the wide span of the long span of Jewish history, the 20th century was really a quite extraordinary time, was it not? On the downside, we Jews were the victims of the world's first systematic genocide. But just a few years later, as you all know, we somehow managed to pick ourselves up and rebuild and reconstitute our ancient homeland in a modern state called Israel. After 2,000 years of statelessness, I, I shrug my shoulders in the attempt to get you to feel the enormity of that. It's something we take for granted, understandably. It's something we are accustomed to. We may not think all the time about just how extraordinary that is of a historic sea change, not just in the Jewish world, but in the world at large. The idea that an ancient people were able to rise like a phoenix, reconstitute themselves in a modern state, it's extraordinary. The 20th century, with both the most tragic and the most redemptive moment in our history, is extraordinary. Now, having said that, I should point out that Yuri Sleskin's book, The Jewish Century, was not about the Holocaust, it was not about Israel. It was instead about the way in which Jews around the world, in Russia, in Eastern Europe, in Central and Western Europe, and in the United States, entered into the various professions, arts, forms of media, journalism, academia, the sciences, during the 20th century in a way that was completely disproportionate to their numbers, completely surprising given the long history of Jews in Western civilization when they had made fantastic strides in terms of developing their own religion and their own tradition. But in terms of contributing to world culture, contributing to the greater culture within which they lived, to be honest, not that much until we come to the 19th and especially the 20th centuries when this people exploded on the scene.
So on the one hand, the 20th can be called the American century. On the other, it can be called the Jewish century. What happens if we put those together? What happens if we look at the way in which American Jews, and by the way, that's the third major event of the 20th century in Jewish history, after the Holocaust and the birth of Israel, the move of the majority of the world's Jews to the United States in a period of mass immigration at the beginning of that century, their subsequent settlement, adjustment, assimilation, and acculturation into American culture is also, can also be seen as a momentous event in Jewish history. We Jews have found a home here in the United States, the likes of which we have never seen before. A place so accepting, so open, so tolerant, relative to everywhere else we experienced, that we have flourished here. And in fact, one of the most extraordinary areas in which Jews have made their mark in American life, in American history, is in popular culture. I'll point to four areas in particular. Four areas of the popular culture of the United States in which Jews have dominated. One is Hollywood film, as you might well know, as documented famously in a book by Neil Gabler. Do you know the name Neil Gabler? He wrote a book called Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. Uh, I once, just parenthetically, I once saw this book sitting on a table of other books uh, on Sixth Avenue in Greenwich Village in New York City. The other books were all by Louis Farrakhan and they were all black nationalist books and anti-Semitic tracts of one kind or another. And in the middle of those books was sitting this book, How the Jews Invented Hollywood, because as you all know, we Jews control the media, so it made sense. Back on this planet, however, in a sane world, it is fair to say that the Jews did invent Hollywood in the sense that every major Hollywood studio, whether it's MGM or Universal or Paramount or you name it, every studio was founded by not just a Jewish person, but an immigrant Jewish person. Every single one. It's extraordinary. And then since then, Jews have overpopulated, again, relative to the numbers, overpopulated Hollywood at every level, with the possible exception of the people starring in the films. But every other role, director, writer, producer, etc., agent, etc., etc., one often finds Jewish people, not as a rule, but again, disproportionate. The Jewish role in the creation of the Hollywood film cannot be overestimated. That's one area. Second area is another new genre of entertainment and popular culture that we call the Broadway musical. Now you may say, well, wait a second, telling a story through music? Well, that's what opera always did. The Broadway musical popularized that. It turned that basic form of the operetta into a popular art form where people would play the record of the, of the soundtrack. People would follow the stars as they moved from one area of popular culture to another. So for example, one of the figures that I write about is a, um, was a Brooklyn girl. Um, she grew up in, in Brooklyn. She went to my father's high school, in fact. Um, when she was 19, she graduated high school early, moved into Manhattan to try to make it as an actor 
was found rejection after rejection, finally made her mark as a singer because she had such a magnificent voice. And it was only two years later that Barbara Streisand found herself in a co-starring role in a Broadway musical called I Can Get It For You Wholesale. She played the part of Miss Marmalstein. This is at the ripe old age of 20. Two years after that, she found herself starring in a major musical based on the life of Fanny Bryce. She played Fanny Bryce called Funny Girl. And you may have noticed that my title today is Funny Jews. And I'll be talking about comedians. I know, no, it doesn't sound like it so far, but we're getting, we're making our way to comedy. But shouldn't a figure like Barbara Streisand also be seen as a funny Jew? We'll think about that and we'll come back to it. So the Hollywood film, Broadway musical, oh, why are Jews involved? Throughout the history of Broadway musicals, 97% of those who write and create Broadway musicals have been Jews. From Irving Berlin and George Gershwin to Rodgers and Hammerstein to Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on. It's really, it's really an extraordinary record of artistic achievement. Number three is popular song, popular music. I mentioned Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin wrote the soundtrack of American life in the first few decades of, this, of that century. I compare him in my work to another Jew, nice Jewish boy who wrote, who also uh, is responsible for an outpouring of artistic accomplishment and songwriting genius, who in the 1960s and thereafter basically wrote the soundtrack of American life then. His name was Bob Dylan. From Irving Berlin to Bob Dylan and so many others, Jews haven't quite dominated songwriting the way they have in other areas, but their, their contribution still is quite remarkable and has to be seen as an, an, an essential part of the Jewish contribution to American culture. Those are three areas that we could talk about. Certainly there have been books written, there, there are other speakers who speak directly to those areas. The area that I'd like to focus on is comedy. And I'll share with you that I had this insight several years back that comedy is in the end all important in understanding the Jewish contribution, the Jewish role in American culture, especially of the 20th century. I was watching a documentary by the great uh, documentarian Ken Burns Right? He's best known for the Civil War, did a great documentary on baseball. It was his documentary on jazz that struck me. As is true in all of his work, the subtext of that documentary was about race in America, about the African-American experience. And he made the argument through that documentary that jazz, the quintessential American art form, the only uh, musical form that has no precedent anywhere else in the world, entirely homegrown, is primarily a black art form. And I, I thought, well, gee, isn't that nice? Uh, how, how nice for black America to have given the rest of us that wonderful form of music. It hit me at some point that we Jews have a parallel record of achievement. And that is in the area of comedy. If one were to make, if Ken Burns or someone else were to make a documentary on the history of comedy in America, there'd be plenty of non-Jews. 
there was Will Rod there was Mark Twain and Will Rogers and W.C. Fields and Bob Hope and Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett and all sorts of non-Jews. There's, there's a significant non-Jewish presence. But once you begin noting the Jewish role, the Jewish comedians, the Jewish comedic perspective that becomes American humor, it is undeniable at just how much of what makes America laugh comes from a Jewish cop. So we want to think about why that is and how that happened and what it means. Uh, rather than getting into the theory, though, let's start with this handout. Does everyone have a copy of the handout I gave you? This is the, uh, so, so up until now was the heavy historical part of our talk. Now we're moving into the academic classroom part of our talk. We'll get to the more fun stuff later, I promise. And then we'll leave plenty of time for questions. Um, I'm happy to answer whatever, whatever you'd like to answer, to ask about, with, with the exception of American electoral politics. That's the one subject that's off limits for today. Uh, you're looking at the timeline of American Jewish life or culture in the early 1960s. The early 1960s is the period that I chose to, to write about in this book. It's a fascinating period. How many people remember the early 1960s? It was the Kennedy years. Well, there, there we go. We have, whenever I, whenever I have a group like you, a group of spring chickens, I, uh, I, I know that I'm in, good, I'm in good hands because if I, if I get something wrong, you were there and you'll be able to correct me. So the early 60s is a period that for a while in my field, the field of American Jewish history, was somewhat of a dark period. And by dark, I mean that it just didn't draw that much attention. The reason being is that the subsequent period from 1967 onward is what captures our attention by and large. Why? What happened in 1967? Look, there you go. Look down at the bottom of this timeline. You'll see the very last event is 1967. Conventional wisdom has it that that event, that, re that uh, reiteration, repetition of the fear of another Holocaust. Right? It was not so much the victory, it was more the, the, the weeks of fear and anxiety leading up to that miraculous victory that left its mark on the American Jewish psyche. It's happening again. They're coming after us yet, yet again. Many, many American Jews who until then had been more or less quiescent, more or less passive in their Jewish lives, were suddenly revived, re, re, reawoken to their Jewish selves. And there's a great amount of truth in the observation that the Six-Day War sparked a revival of Jewish life. If you look, for example, at the record of American Jewish organizations, it is in the late 60s and 70s and thereafter when we see hundreds of new organizations and therefore much of that kind of communal activism that clearly was motivated in some way by the trauma of the Six-Day War and, and the, the victory as well, which revived a sense of pride for many Jewish people, especially young Jewish people. So I don't mean to take away from the importance of the Six-Day War. I do mean to suggest that it didn't happen out of the blue. There is a prehistory. There are several years prior to that, that moment when Jewish 
life is waking up. Jewish consciousness is being revived. And my thesis is that it's being revived not by a war taking place around the world, but rather by popular culture here in our own neck of the woods. So again, looking at the timeline, uh, I would ask you to look. We're starting at the bottom. We're going backwards. Um, the, for 1965, I, 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 I apologize. I, I did write this rather quickly, more or less off the top of my head for you just the other day. And I did forget something. 1965 is usually the year that makes it onto timelines of Jewish history. Does anyone know what happened in 1965 other than the movie The Pawnbroker that's missing from this timeline? There actually, there are actually three significant events. So, you, if you agreement? Uh, say it again. Gentlemen's agreement was that. Gentlemen's agreement is 1947, much oh, earlier. Uh, yeah. No, that's okay. But that's, but certainly an important, a very important film, a very important landmark in American Jewish culture was Gentlemen's Agreement. Won the Academy Award for Best Picture, you know, right? We, and, and perhaps we'll we'll talk briefly about that. But no, in 1965, three things happened that do more often make it onto timelines. Uh, one, Sandy Koufax sat out for Yom Kippur during the World Series. That was the World Series of 1965. Two, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel marched to Selma next to Martin Luther King Jr. Participated a prominent conservative rabbi marching in a prominent position in the, civil, in the iconic march of the civil rights movement. Very important, and, and Rabbi Heschel becomes famous for having said, I was praying with my feet. How, how beautiful and how significant for us in looking, and we still face this challenge as American Jews, how to, how to um, activate our Judaism, our faith, in the service of the greater good as well as, as to the benefit of our own community. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a tension we still live in. Heschel is one of those moments where it crystallized for many young Jews. And thirdly, the other event wasn't in the Jewish world, but it had, uh, had ramifications for us. The Catholic Church held its second Vatican Council in 1965. And it was that year when they finally repudiated, they threw it out the window, the idea, the old Christian folk belief that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. That is, the, that, had been, that is known as the accusation of deicide, the murder of God. The Catholic Church finally says, no, we do not subscribe to that. You, you, all of the Catholics around the world stop thinking that in 1965. Well, <laughs> whether it worked or not, it's still a significant moment uh, in the longer course of the history of Christian-Jewish relations. So 65 is an important moment, and I add this to this timeline, once again to point out that 65, 67, those later years, a lot's happening. But then what about those several years prior? What had begun to, to pop up in American life and American culture that began to reshape the way American Jews saw themselves and were able to represent themselves as Jews in American society. Well, now go, looking at the top, we see that uh, one important uh, landmark event was the publication of a novel. Wouldn't think that would make such a splash, but in fact, 1958, when Leon Uris's book Exodus comes out, it was an extraordinary moment of 
realization. 10 years after the establishment of Israel, 15 years after World War II and the Holocaust, this novel, which took both historical events and fictionalized them, became one of the most powerful reminders for American Jews who read this book. This was on the best-selling list, bestseller list for months. So it's not only Jews that's reading it. It is a popular phenomenon. That's the definition of popular culture. Can't just be by Jews for Jews. It has to also play in Peoria. Right? Do you all remember that phrase? That's what makes it popular, and that was true of Exodus. So think how extraordinary it is for us, for our small little minority of non-Christian Americans to be given this gift of recognition and of a sense of pride in what we had lived through and what the 20th century had given to us. But now it's a bestseller here in America. And it's only two years later, such was the power of that book and its publication, only two years is it turned into a major Hollywood blockbuster of a film. Made by Otto Preminger, top Hollywood director, a German Jewish refugee, and starring one of the biggest Hollywood stars, Paul Newman, who was himself Jewish. His father was Jewish. And, and if, if when asked in later interviews how he sees himself, how he identifies, he said, I identify as being Jewish. And the reason I make this point is that people don't often see him that way. Right? How many people see Jerry Seinfeld as being Jewish? <laughs> How many people see, uh, you know, oh, this is, uh, there was a great, uh, again, forgive me for, for uh, uh, going on a tangent here. There was a, a wonderful sketch on Saturday Night Live back in uh, the late 80s. It was called Jew Not a Jew, that's right. Uh, how many, any, anyone else remember this? Jew, not a Jew. It, as Saturday Night Live often does, it was a spoof of a game show, a TV game show. The name of this game show was Jew, not a Jew, and was hosted by Tom Hanks. Very non-Jewish, you know, familiar, nice guy, but certainly not a Jew. The contestants were all non-Jewish couples, and the way the game was played, they would put up a picture of a famous figure in American pop culture, and the contestants had to buzz when they decided whether it was a Jew or not a Jew. So the first picture they put up was Penny Marshall. Remember Penny Marshall? I think she just passed away last year, right? They... Oh, Gary, you're right. Excuse me. She's still kicking. Penny, wherever you are, I apologize. Thank you. Sorry. Penny Marshall, the, uh, who used to be on Laverne and Shirley, then became a director. They put up her picture. Buzz. She's a Jew, Bob. She's a Jew. No, sorry. She's born. She was an Italian, American, da da da, right? Then they put up a picture of Michael Landon. Remember Michael Landon from Little House on the Prairie and Bonanza before that, right? Sorry. Uh, and they, they, they talked about it. They deliberated. And then finally they said, um, Boop, Buzz, I, I, think he, I think he might be Jewish. And Tom Hanks says, That's right. Born Eugene Horwitz in Brooklyn, New York, da da da. So that's an example of someone who is a hidden Jew. He's a very popular figure, but most people don't know about his Jewish background, right? This TV show and a habit that many of us Jews have is in exposing them, is in knowing who they are. How many people in this room know Tony Curtis's birth name? Schwartz. Schwartz. Bernie Schwartz. Bernie Schwartz. Right. 
what self-respecting Jew doesn't know that? <laughs> Most people have no idea that Tony Curtis is Bernie Schwartz, but we know, right? Uh, the third person in this TV show was, uh, they put a picture of Ed Koch, the mayor of New York. And everyone laughs, because of course he's a Jew. He's someone who is a Jewishly identifiable Jew, right? So there are a range of Jews in popular culture between those who are well-known to be Jewish, Seinfeld, Jon Stewart, etc., and those who uh, maybe more assimilated, maybe changed their names, maybe changed their, their hair color. You know, Danny Kaye, who was born, anybody know Danny Kaye's birth name? David Kaminsky. Danny Kaye, when he went to Hollywood, he, be, he became a big star uh, comedian on the stage, but then he was brought to Hollywood. And it was, uh, I think it was Samuel Goldwyn at MGM said, no, you've got to fix your nose and dye your hair blonde. That's the only way we can sell you. That's the only way you'll play in Peoria. So Danny Kaye, to his credit, refused to have his nose fixed, but he did change his name and he did dye his hair. If you, if you go back and see those movies, he's got bright, orange hair, right? Um, so Ed Koch was certainly a Jew. Uh, this, I, this, this I, again, I apologize for tangent, but it, you'll see how it relates. This habit that many Jews have of identifying who's Jewish in the popular culture was given a name by a colleague of mine. And that name was Jew-hooing. To Jew-who was taken, I didn't invent this, but it was taken from a website called Juhu, which itself was a takeoff on Yahoo. Yahoo was a search engine. And so Juhu meant it was a search engine that you can plug in any Jewish celebrity's name, or rather any celebrity's name, and find out if they are Jewish or not. And there are now several websites that provide this service for you. A couple of them are anti-Semitic, but a couple of them are, are more innocent than that. Um, hence the title of my book, Juhuing the 60s. Because again, as we'll see, it's in the early 60s when many Jews in the public eye, with certain significant exceptions, but most Jews in the public eye were like Tony Curtis and Danny Kay. They had changed their names and they were not advertising the fact that they were Jewish. There are exceptions to this, like Hank Greenberg, everyone knew he was Jewish, the great uh, home run hitter of the Detroit Tigers back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, Gertrude Berg, who created the, the wonderful radio and television character, Molly Goldberg, right? The famous show, The Goldbergs. Obviously, that was explicitly Jewish. But the majority of Jews in the public eye were assimilated, were hidden. That's to say that somewhere along the line, someone had suggested to them, and they bought it, that they didn't want to be, what? Too Jewish. In fact, it was most often Jewish agents and producers who said to them, change your name. Don't be too Jewish. Tone it down. Don't be too obvious. That was the attitude that held sway through the 30s, 40s, 50s. When does it change? Any guesses? 67. <laughs> it changes in the 1960s. So yes, I half agree with you, sir. But the point of this study is that the early 60s, prior to the Six-Day War, it begins to change already. Yeah, but the Six-Day yeah. War... Well, if you're paying attention, that, that's, that's precisely the argument I'm making. And I made... No, no, you made the opposite argument, so let me finish. In the 30s and 40s, yeah. the Jews didn't have any confidence because you got slapped down for being Jewish. There were all the uh, 
barriers to graduate school. There were all uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. uh, country clubs. There were places you couldn't yeah. go or live. Yeah. So it's better to shut up and just you know get along. Yeah. No. Uh, let, let me just reiterate that because it's very important. Uh, your name is. Bob's point is extremely important that that the everything that I'm talking about always has a context. There's always a a, a reason for for these these uh, phenomena. So the fact that Jews felt uh, inhibited about being too outwardly Jewish has a context, and that is I mean you didn't use the word, but what you're describing are various forms of anti-Semitic discrimination that Jews that Jews faced in this country. Once again, when does that begin to happen? The Six-Day War is a turning point, but what I'm adding to that, which is true in itself, I'm adding to that the fact that over the several years prior, it begins to erode as well. That the, sure does, the well, was, that's, that's teaching, my point. Yeah. I was teaching in 1967. Yeah. And Could, Bob, can, we, can I finish this and we'll leave that for the question part? More than happy yeah, to come back to it? Okay. It's not that dramatic. Okay. Uh, let's let's finish looking at this at this chart because I think it really gives you a sense of what's going on in the early '60s. It's just, it, to my mind, it's a fascinating moment when still, and to Bob's point, and uh, many of you may remember this as well, we lived in a country when to be Jewish was being an other, an outsider, and not that that has changed 100%. Obviously, there still is anti-Semitism, both structural and psychological, that that exists. And that, as we've seen recently, can be revived. So it's not that we've, we've entered a paradise or a utopia, but there was a significant change for the better around this time period. And it's in some of this that you begin to see it. So the same kind of pride that would be raised nine years later by the Israeli victory is raised already in 1958 by Exodus and two years later by the film. There's an extraordinary scene in the film version of Exodus, which wasn't in the novel, it was added by Preminger. And just to give you a sense of how this is changing at this moment, the scene is when Ari Ben Kanan, played by Paul Newman, drives his blonde Gentile American girlfriend, played by Eva Marie Saint, drives her to visit his parents in the Galil on their Moshav. And on their drive up north in Israel, he pulls over to the side of the road to an overlook looking out over the uh, Jezreel Valley with Har Gilboa, Mount Gilboa in the midst. And he points to this beautiful landscape and he says, I just wanted you to see this. I've wanted you to see my country. This country is Jewish. This land belongs to me. And as much as people talk about the importance of erasing difference, he says to her, People are different. They like being different. There is value to being different. We don't simply need to erase all differences in some kind of universalistic vision of, of social utopia. It's an extraordinary moment. Why did Preminger add those lines? The American, played by Eva Marie Saint, says, oh, Ari, don't be silly. People are all the same down underneath where it counts. All these differences are made up. And he says, don't you believe it? Very poignant, powerful moment in that film. And I'd like to suggest to you that it too needs to be read against the background of what's going on in American culture. Keep in mind this is the height of the civil rights movement when the black community is fighting for its equal place in America. It's also the moment 
when American Jews are moving into their third generation. American Jews are moving into a period when every one of them goes to college, many of them go into the professions, many of them succeed quite nicely, economically and socially in American culture. And, the, and what is the result of that social success is meeting and falling in love and often marrying non-Jewish people. In 1960, the rate of intermarriage is single digits, 7%, 9%, something like that. Today, it is approximately 57%. It begins skyrocketing, and by the way, you know, however you, I'm sure we're all touched by this, we all have this phenomenon in our families, in our lives. However you feel about it, keep in mind that it is a sign of being accepted. It is evidence that Jews have found a home. It may be detrimental to Jewish life in certain ways, but it cannot be denied that the extraordinary rate of intermarriage is a sign of that success that we sought here from the very beginning. That openness to us, that embrace of us, which often ends in love and marriage. It is the early 1960s when sociologists begin noticing that the rate is beginning to climb, and a number of uh, what later become famous articles are published. One by my teacher, Professor Marshall Sclair, was the, was the father of American Jewish sociology at Brandeis University, wrote an article in 1963 warning the community that this rate was only going to go upward. Uh, Life Magazine was The Vanishing American Jew. That was a popularization. And it was that same year, it was 1964. So the same moment, good, thank you. That, that should be on this timeline, by the way. So thank you for that, yeah. The very same moment, again, several years before the Six Day War, the very same moment that American Jews have reached their peak of acceptance, the door is finally open, they finally begin to see the possibility of being fully accepted as fully equal Americans. That moment when they see that is the same moment when they are reminded by Otto Preminger and others that no, Jews are different. And that mixed message, Jews are the same, Jews are equal, Jews should be and could be and can be, together with their fellow Americans in every conceivable way, including sharing a home and a family with them, versus the historical knowledge that Jews are, have their own unique destiny, certainly their own unique history, hits home. Look down at this timeline, and you'll see that it is in 1959 that there's a major Hollywood film version of The Diary of Anne Frank. Phil Roth publishes his first collection of short stories, which includes a short story entitled um, Eli the Fanatic, which was one of the very first pieces of American Jewish literature about Holocaust survivors. Herman Woke, very, one of the more popular uh, writers of that period, publishes a very personal statement, this is my God, the Jewish way of life. And Elizabeth Taylor marries Eddie Fisher and converts to Judaism. Marilyn Monroe had done so a few years earlier when she married Arthur Miller. The following year, Sammy Davis Jr. would convert as well. Something is going on. Something's in the air. 
continue looking down. JFK elected president, a fairly major event in its own life. But the fact that he appoints two Jewish men to his cabinet, not just any Jews, but one named Goldberg and one named Ribikoff, right? hadn't changed their names. These were Jewish Jews. Suddenly given such prominence in American public life, we're going through a cabinet selection process right now, so imagine what that was like in 1960 when the announcement came through that it would be Goldberg and Ribikoff. Uh, the film Exodus comes out, and then Elie Wiesel's uh, memoir called Night, which had come out in, originally in French, originally wrote it in Yiddish and translated it to French, it was published in French, finally comes out in English in 1960. When I teach the Holocaust, I teach a uh, lecture of 100 students at USC uh, this coming semester. When I ask them the question, who here has read Night? It's remarkable, most, most every student raises their hand. It has become, together with the diary of Anne Frank, these two small volumes have become the standard texts, the iconic texts of Holocaust memory. So that first comes out in this period. And then speaking of Holocaust memory, look at the next number of items. Raoul Hilberg publishes the first major history. Adolf Eichmann is captured by Israeli agents, Mossad agents, in 1960, and then will be put on trial in Jerusalem in the spring and summer of 1961 in what will be an internationally televised trial. There um, is a bit of a myth, a little, again, a bit of conventional wisdom that is partly true and not entirely so, that we ignored the subject of the Holocaust for a good 10, 15 years after the event. A colleague of mine named Chasia Diner, who teaches American Jewish history at NYU, uh, recently wrote a book debunking that. In fact, rabbis, educators, communal leaders, from the very beginning, the moment the war ended, went about the business of commemorating. There was not yet the word Holocaust, but there was the awareness of what we had lost. And the American Jewish community did not simply bury its head in the sand. We have Professor Diner to thanks for that insight. However, it is not until this moment when the Holocaust becomes a matter of concern to everyone. Once again, the power of popular culture. Everything that's on here is popular. Exodus was being seen by more non-Jews than Jews. Elie Wiesel's book may have been more of a Jewish matter, but certainly the televised trial of Adolf Eichmann was something that was watched by people around the world and beyond the Jewish community. Um, Continuing down, Judgment in Nuremberg comes out of this period. And then we move into the lighter areas of, 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 of popular culture. I have Allen Ginsberg wrote Kaddish for his mother. That's, that's the 60s beginning, the beat generation. Uh, but then Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner mm -hmm. come out with their, uh, their very successful record, The 2,000-Year-Old Man. As Mel Brooks has said many times since, he was doing his, his grandfather, he was doing his uncle. He was doing the voice and the attitude of the older Jewish generation. Yeah. Mr. 2,000-year-old man, how many, how many children do you have? Oh, I have thousands of children, and not one comes to visit. I mean, it's just so, the Jewish humor in that character is so wonderful, and yet here again, most people watching him on The Tonight Show or watching it wherever weren't thinking Jewish humor. 
They popularized it. They Americanized it. Carl Reiner playing the Americanized younger person. Mel Brooks playing the older immigrant, in this case an immigrant Jew, who has been around forever. Right, and shares his secrets of longevity. Never run for a bus. Right? <laughs> Eat good fruit, a nectarina, good nectarina. Right? I mean, it's just so, it's, you know, we, we give credit to Seinfeld for creating this comedy of the ordinary. But really, when we look at the longer history of Jewish humor, it was there. It was there all along. Uh, they were a huge hit in 1962, 1961, sorry. And then I have on the sheet, and here's where I'll finish with the sheet, uh, a series of dates. And they're all in the fall of 1961. This was Kennedy's first year in office, the first year of that, dec that auspicious decade. And uh, four figures, four Jewish celebrity figures, all more or less appear on the scene at that very moment. On September 27th of 1961, a young pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, he'd started in Brooklyn and moved with the team when they moved, uh, finally began pitching. How many people here are baseball fans? It's, we're past the season. But so those of you who raised your hand certainly know the legend, the myth of Sandy Koufax, one of the great, if not the greatest pitcher in baseball history, who as we all know, was also a great Jew. Why? Because he didn't pitch on Yom Kippur, yeah, right. right? Now, as you may know, so what? Hank Greenberg did the same. One could, one could question this in all sorts of ways. I do so in the book. Um, one of my favorite was, that I'm quoting a uh, sports writer who wrote a biography of Koufax and to show, named Ed Lynn, I think his name was, to show just how unremarkable was this event he, he goes back and finds every other Jewish holiday that Koufax either pitched or didn't pitch on. And in fact, he had been sitting out for high holidays throughout his career, so there was nothing new about that. And if you, know, if you, if you apply Jewish law, halakha, to this, I mean, he pitched on plenty of other holidays. So in the sports biography, he, he points out all the various Shmini Atzeretz when <laughs> Koufax did pitch. And so my line was, it's probably the only instance of a sports biography to talk about Shmini Atzeret, right? Um, <laughs> Koufax is a, is a wonderful story. And I love Sandy Koufax. And I hope that you will all you know, buy this from Amazon and read up on San Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax is a great figure and a wonderful story, as I say. Not especially funny. My other three, right, there are four figures uh, profiled here. Uh, the other three are Lenny Bruce, comedian, Bob Dylan, singer-songwriter, and Barbara Streisand, singer, actor, etc. right? Now, of those four, the one that's usually thought of as being funny is Lenny Bruce, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I, I, I have to point out, however, that the other two, Barbara Streisand and Bob Dylan, also emerging at this moment, at this vexed moment when suddenly it's okay to be Jewish, but still not entirely. We're still, we're, we're in that in-between space. We're not entirely sure. And one response to that, to that identity confusion is humor. One way of expressing or, or, or reacting to the tension is humor. When Bob Dylan got on stage in Greenwich Village early in his career 
and said to the audience, and here's a foreign song I learned in Utah. And then begin singing, ha, la, nagi, la. That was funny stuff. He was operating in that space of Jew, not a Jew. Is he or isn't he? Right? Playing on that question of public Jewish identification. Barbara Streisand, uh, does it in a different way. Barbara Streisand embraces her Jewish identity from the start. She has a great uh, Brooklyn accent to use to mark herself. Forget about the nose. It's the way she spoke. It was the voice, the attitude that was Brooklyn Jewish to the core. And you know, I, I, I'm bred in, born and bred in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, when I used to drive a cab in New York and people would find out I was from Brooklyn, they'd say, you don't, you don't sound like it. And I, I, tr I do my best to put on a Brooklyn accent. I, I, I won't even embarrass myself. I won't even try it with you. But Barbara Streisand came by it naturally, growing up in 1950s Brooklyn, in that world which, in a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, you were part of an all-Jewish world. It was really the American equivalent of the shtetl, of the European ghetto. Everyone you knew was Jewish. And in such an environment, one feels all the more comfortable in their Jewish skin, all the more natural in their Jewish mannerisms and attitudes and language and behavior and humor. And she had absorbed all of that and was an extremely funny girl <laughs> early in her career. Interestingly, the word that was applied to her was not funny as often, although, of course, that's, that was the title of the Fanny Bryce uh, uh, play and, and musical. The term that was applied to her more often was kooky. People, does anyone use this word any longer? Kooky is one of those words that used to be in, in fashion, and it's, it's now a little bit uh, tired, a little bit hackneyed. We don't use it quite as often, but in the 1960s, it was a trendy word. And one finds in the literature about Barbara Streisand, this word applied to her over and over, the kooky kid from Brooklyn. One of her early television appearances in those early years, she was on TV all the time. They couldn't get enough of her because she was so entertaining. She was so kooky. She's on The uh, Tonight Show with a relatively new host. I think he'd only been there a couple of months. A very young guy from the Midwest named Johnny Carson. And Carson says to her, you know, I hear people call you kooky all the time. What, what is this about? And they have a long conversation about that word. And she, in her inimitable way, just makes stuff up. She just tells stories. She just acts out the meaning of being kooky. Now, I want to suggest to you that in 1960s America, Jews were just entering the public sphere as Jews. And that meant that they had to do two things. They had to behave nicely. They had to control whatever kooky or outlandish uh, impulses they might have had. But at the same time, they had to justify and legitimate their presence. Why are we as Jews entering the fray, entering the public space of American culture? Because we have something to say, because at the end of the day, we're different. The very appearance of Jews on the public scene was an acknowledgment of that 
difference. We have a different point of view. We have a different and unique sense of humor that you're gonna love. We're gonna knock you dead and make you love it. And that is precisely the story of hundreds if not thousands of stand-up comedians who begin emerging, well, many of them got their start in the Catskills and the Borscht Belt, but during the course of the 50s and 60s, they're moving onto the nightclub stage, they're, move, they're appearing in Las Vegas, they're appearing on television, and they are presenting their material, their Jewish humor, for a mass audience. And I'm talking about Shecky Green and Jackie Mason and Rodney Dangerfield and Henny Youngman and a couple of women here and there. Joan Rivers would join the group, but they're primarily men. But of the few dozen that we can name, there were hundreds and hundreds of others. Let me end with just one of them. Again, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm teaching a course. We could spend quite a bit of time with any number of these figures. They're all fascinating in their own right. But Lenny Bruce comes along at precisely this moment of historic shift that I've been describing. His mother was an entertainer. Um, what's her name? Sally Marr. Her name, original name is Sadie Kitchenberg, but she later becomes a burlesque dancer herself named Boots Malloy. And her daughter-in-law, uh, Lenny Bruce's wife, Honey, once said, from Sadie Kitchenberg to Boots Malloy, you better have nice legs to make that jump, right? <laughs> but she was best known as Sally Marr, the mother of Lenny Bruce, who was in the business. So Lenny basically is going into the family business, coming out of his service in the Navy in World War II, coming back to stateside, he decides to become a comedian. And throughout the late 40s and, 50, and most of the 50s, he is a hack. He is a schlock comedian, will play anywhere, is generally thought of as being awful, stealing other people's material, not going anywhere. The most famous thing he does during that period is that one of the jobs he could get was as, as an MC at strip clubs. That was his claim to fame. And he, one night, he came on stage completely nude. <laughs> and for this, he, is, he became beloved by other show people for having the chutzpah, having the comedic temerity. I look at that as another form of assimilation. He was assimilating into the culture of the strip club. Right? And I mean this seriously. In other words, he was absorbing what was around him and using it to comic effect. In the late 50s, he suddenly has a revelation. He divorces his wife, Honey, Irish Catholic stripper named Honey, um, Honey, Hot Harley, Hot Honey Marlowe was her original name, Honey Bruce. They are divorced. And in his post-divorce period, he begins getting on stage and just riffing, just doing stream of consciousness. Forget about the bum, 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 the rhythm, the traditional rhythms of the stand-up comic, one joke to another joke to another joke. All of that was out the window. And he begins just riffing. And he begins talking about subject matter that wasn't usually talked about. He began using dirty words. He began talking about sex and race and religion. All the, all the touchy, taboo topics. And as such, he becomes more and more successful. He becomes known by about 58. He becomes 
profiled by Time Magazine as the king of the sick comics. They called them sick because they didn't have another word. They didn't know how to describe this new form of comedy that was so brutally honest. And one of the areas, one of the taboo subjects that he used in his, in his comedy, I, I, I suggested a moment ago that it was stream of consciousness. That might suggest that it was entirely improvised. But the fact is he worked very hard on his material, but prevented, presented it in a new format. One of the other areas in which he began to create routines was to talk about something else that until then had been more or less taboo in public, on stage, in popular culture. Any guesses? No, politics was one of them. Religion was another. Sex was another. But this is more in keeping with my theme, and that is being Jewish. All of the other comedians would get on stage and do their thing, and they were great. Jerry Lewis was brilliant. Lewis and Martin were hysterically funny. But did Jerry Lewis ever get on stage and say, by the way, my real name is Joseph Levitch? Never. Nor did Danny Kay, nor did... Henny Youngman, nor did any of those other great comedians of that period. The very first comedian to begin talking about being Jewish on stage was Lenny Bruce. He did this because it was yet another taboo to break. He did it because it made his audience feel a little uncomfortable. <clears throat> he did it because he knew he could mine that discomfort for laughs. So let me, it's just an example, let me just read to you just one of his famous routines. Um, through the good graces of uh, Kitty Bruce, his daughter, who I just got to meet. We, uh, we just had a conference on Lenny Bruce uh, at Brandeis University just two, three weeks ago um, because Brandeis has just acquired his papers. His daughter Kitty donated them to Brandeis. They have now cataloged them. They've created an archive for scholars to do research on Lenny Bruce. Uh, we had a conference and Kitty Bruce was there, so I, I got to meet her and I got to thank her for giving me the right to use this material. Um, one of his most famous, do we have time for two or how are we, are we young? Okay, I'll do two. Um, because I mentioned uh, earlier the, uh, the issue of the Catholic Church and, and deicide. So let me, um, all right, this, well, there's, he has a famous routine about that. So let me, let me read to you a slightly less jarring, slightly less threatening routine. This is Lenny Bruce. Now the reason perhaps for my irreverence is that I have no knowledge of the God because the Jews lost their God, really. Before I was born, the God was going away. Because to have a God, you have to know something about him. And as a child, I didn't speak the same language as the Jewish God. To have a God, you have to love him and know about him as kids, early instruction. And I didn't know what he looked like. Our God, the Jewish God, has no mother, no father, no manger in the five and ten on cereal boxes and on television shows. The Christian God, you Christians are lucky in that way because you've got Mary, a mother, a father, a beginning, the five and ten little mangers, identity. Your God, the Christian God, is all over. He's on rocks, he saves you, he's dying on bank buildings, he's been in three films, he's on crucifixes all over. It's a story you can follow. Constant identification. The Jewish God, however, the Jewish God, where's the Jewish God? He's on a little box nailed to the door jamb. 
<laughs> in a mezuzah. There he is in there. He's standing on a slant, God. And all the Jews are looking at him and kissing him on the way into the house. I told the super, don't paint God. Hey, super, come here. What the hell's the matter with you? I told you 20 times. That's God there. What are you painting God for? Etc. right? So a great example of how Lenny Bruce uses the kind of material we don't usually talk about. Right? Philip Roth had just begun writing stories about this sort of thing. The Catholic Church had just begun to talk about correcting its record. This was all new. It was raw. It was painful. And so the most painful, I'll end with this other routine of his, which is just shocking. But for those of you who have never heard it, I think it's worth hearing. Um, if you've ever seen the biofilm of Lenny Bruce called Lenny that was made by Bob Fosse mm -hmm. with Dustin Hoffman playing the title role, he recreates this routine as part of his stand. I am of Semitic background. I assume I'm Jewish. A lot of Jews who think they're Jewish are not. They're switched babies. <laughs> now, a Jew in the dictionary is one who is descended from the ancient tribes of Judea or one who is regarded as descended from that tribe. That's what it says in the dictionary. But you and I know what a Jew is, one who killed our Lord. I don't know if we got much press on that in Illinois. We did this about 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years of Polak kids whacking the shit out of us coming home from school. Dear, dear. And although there should be a statute of limitations for that crime, it seems that those who neither have the actions nor the gate of Christians, pagan or not, will bust us out unrelenting dues for another deuce, another 2,000 years. And I really searched it out. Why we pay the dues? Why do you keep breaking our balls for this crime? Why, Jew? Because you skirt the issue. You blame it on the Roman soldiers. All right, I'll clear the air once and for all and confess, yes, we did it. I did it, my family. I found a note in the basement that said, we killed him, sign Morty. <laughs> and a lot of people say to me, why did you kill Christ? I don't know, it was one of those parties, got out of hand, you know? <laughs> we killed him because he didn't want to become a doctor, that's why we killed him. <laughs> okay, so to state the obvious, painful material, the background to that is tragic. That's there. We, therefore, are uncomfortable talking about it. The comedian standing on stage breaks that taboo and in the process points, I would argue, quite effectively to just how nonsensical this idea was in the first place. And that's the genius of Jewish comedy. I'll stop there and we'll open it to questions. <laughs> Happy to address anything you like. When do we eat? Yes, <laughs> I was not aware until after Lenny Bruce peaked and had so much trouble. Why was he arrested? Was it because of language that he used? Yeah. He well, as you, as as I didn't get to, but thank you for pointing that out. Right. So his very first arrest was in that September of '61. He then will be arrested every city he goes to. The police will hear he's coming, 
and they will find a way to arrest him either for obscenity on stage, most often, yeah. or sometimes they'll break down his hotel room and find his prescription drugs and bust him for drugs. So it's one or the other, but in either case, it was a form of harassment. They had his number, they were going to get him. The famous story told by his acolyte Paul Krasner was that uh, in one of his trials in Chicago, happened to be on Ash Wednesday. And, in, and as the jury filed into the docket, every single one of them had Ash on their forehead, as did the judge, as did the DA. I mean, it was just, if it, 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 it's, you know, if it, if it were true, it would be a joke in itself, right? So that gives you a sense there was, so one could therefore extract that there was an anti-Semitic element to this. More to the point, this is still in an American society where obscenity was still not accepted, frank talk of sex and sexuality was not accepted, and frank talk of Jewishness was still sketchy, right? So it's all of a piece, all of those, in an intersectional way, as we say, all of those operated together to brand uh, Lenny Bruce the, the boogeyman. You know, it's, I could see when uh, he was talking about, you know, Polacks, you know. You know, as a kid, I, I'm about eight or nine years old, I was brought up in a Jewish neighborhood of Chicago. Then we had to move to, it was an Italian neighborhood. And, uh, and my brother and, and I were walking up from school and they started beating up on us. And I went up to my parents and I said, why? I mean, you know, they're calling me, you know, Christ killer. And, you know, I can see why you're saying that. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to, to add, uh, uh, there was another line that Lenny Bruce sometimes added, and that's in the movie, that you hear, you don't see him talk about it, you hear it, and that is, he, he adds, it's a good thing they did this to us then, because if it happened today, we have to contend with generations of Catholic school kids walking around with a little electric chair around their necks. <laughs> I didn't say Lenny Bruce did. <laughs> Yes, next question. Wow. Yes? So, not, not necessarily of the stars and all that that changed their names, but don't you think a lot of Jews in general just changed their names because of fear? Well, uh, it's, it's more, a little more complicated, but certainly fearfulness is part of it. The phenomenon of name changing is part of the process of assimilation, of acculturating into American culture. Immigrants from every background have done this in the past and continue to do this. So um, the first answer is it's, it's a very common, almost universal phenomenon. Now Jews are implicated in a slightly different way because their motivation to assimilate was perhaps, it could be argued, all the, more, all the more powerful than other, even other immigrant groups. Every immigrant group wants to become American, wants to fit in, wants to make it, etc. Jews have the added motivation of the memory of the old country, of the anti-Semitism throughout, that ran throughout their history, and of the anti-Semitism that was still present, together with uh, what might be described, my, my teacher Jonathan Sarna, this American Jewish historian, called it the quest for success that one can find in Jewish culture a special uh, motivation to, to make it, to succeed, to be educated, et cetera, to, to uh, make oneself, uh, to build a comfortable lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So Jewish culture, you know, it's often said Jews are like everyone else, but a little more so, right? So that, that would apply to this issue of changing names. I have a colleague who's writing a book 
entirely on this question of name changes. And so for the past several years, she's been going around asking everyone, not only doing archival research, but also asking people, what are your stories? How many people here have the story of a name change in their own history? Right? Most, well, oh, so that's not as many as I, I would have thought, but it's a very, very common, common phenomenon. My favorite, personally, my favorite name change, there is a wonderful Jewish art historian named Rachel Vishnitzer. Her children changed their name to Winchester. Oh, okay. and that's my favorite. And so and we could certainly talk more about this, right? Uh, yes? So, uh, my uh, last name is uh, Greenfeather. And so it's a combination of uh, uh, Shawnee, Shawnee uh, Indian and uh, myself. So it's, it's half and half. So, uh, you, know. now, you, have, you have both those backgrounds. You, you, you yourself have both those backgrounds. Yes. And your name combines combines the two it's cultures. Green. Beautiful. It's green. My father. Beautiful. I, 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 have a, I have a dear friend named Eric Green, who has black background, Native American, and Jewish. And so maybe it's interesting that the name Green might. Yeah. Have it. Thank you. My father's story was that when they arrived at Ellis Island, and they did, his father didn't speak any. English, and so the person in front of him was Finkelstein, and the guy said, oh, what's your name? Blank stares, it's Finkelstein. <laughs> oh, that's a true story. I thought you were telling a joke. You all know the joke. There was a Jewish, Yiddish-speaking immigrant named Sean Ferguson. Yeah. <laughs> they said, how did you get that name? He said, I was so nervous. And Ellis Island, I said, Sean Ferguson. Got <laughs> it. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. <laughs> My father changed his name because he wanted to work for the Brooklyn Union Gas Company and they didn't hire Jews, so he changed his name. Well, actually, his brother changed it first, but he didn't, and he kept it a secret. He didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. He didn't like anyone. What, why do you think he kept it a secret? Why Embarrassed. Embarrassed, yeah. A little guilt, yeah. I think, I think that's part of the story we're telling, right? On the one hand, name changes are part of the process of acculturation. We, we absorb and adapt the new culture of the new land. And that's how we become American. So it's part of our success story. And yet, as you were suggesting, something is lost in the process. And I think that it has to also be added that um, there's, there's a famous case of uh, Irving Wallace, a writer, whose, whose son, David, changed his name back to the original Wallachinsky. So Irving Wallace is the father, David Wallachinsky is the son. Now this is Yotze Dovin, this is a, uh, an exceptional case, but it does reflect the way in which the younger generation sometimes will circle back. It is not necessarily a straight line of assimilation into oblivion. There is revival, there is circularity, and that's, that's the key point to know. Yeah. Oh, is the really? Who's that? What's the name? It was um, Roslinski. They changed it back to Rose, and then Rosen, and then he went. The younger generation went back to Roslinski. How interesting! Thank you for that. Thank you for that. My guess is, though, if their name had been Lipschitz, they wouldn't have gone that way. Yes, sir. Uh, I never could understand it until I asked. Uh, my grandfather's name was Benjamin Lipschitz. His brother was. Freeman, 
Good. Freeman. John Winston. They know. I don't get it. Really? Brothers? Of course. How come you have different names? He said, well, when Dubbett came to the United States, he didn't speak any English. He was at Ellen's Island, and he was petrified that he would not be allowed into the United States. He sent back. And so when the guard or whatever it was said to him, what's your name? He in panic said, Benafayaman. Translation on a free man. God said, what's your name? Benafayaman. God turns to the next car. What did he say? He said, he says he's a free man. Okay. That became his name. Free man. Uh, just uh, uh, certainly the, <clears throat> the story we tell that the name was changed at Ellis Island at the moment of arrival often is true. But just as often, it happens later. And this goes to what to, uh, you asked about fear. The more immediate cause of this was fear of not being employed. Now, this was the need to get a job. And more often than not, the name is changed by the second generation, not the immigrant first generation. So that's also, that also has to be added to this, the list of reasons. Yeah. Yes? Uh, I have two instances, one where the father was Rose, and the kid changed it back to Rosalinsky. Oh. But, okay. but my first husband, uh, Lanny from Galveston, and the name was Vichick, and he was a lady, so he became Levin. Okay. Okay. Because Vichick is harder to pronounce. It doesn't sound as... As, as mellifluous. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so, you know, as long as we're telling stories, let me end with one quick story of my family. This is about the first name, not the last name. My mother's uncle came to this country named Itzhak Buchstein. Itzhak Buchstein. Um, his father was a sofer, a Torah scribe, that's why he was Buchstein. So he goes to public school, and public school, they, that's often where they would give you your new name. You can't be Itzhak in an American public school. This is in Chelsea, Massachusetts. So they renamed him or rechristened him Isidore. So he became Isidore Bookstein. When he later decided to rebel and leave his family of Torah scribes and go to art school in Boston, he had to change his name from Isidore because it sounded too Jewish. This was around in the early 1920s. So he changed his name to a good American sounding name, Irving. It's <laughs> my uncle Irving. With that, I thank you all. This has been much fun. And I'm